Welcome to AnthroTalking, a podcast series from Stockholm University's Anthropology Department. No, not a parrot. To me, a parrot would be... That, to me, means someone that's repeating, you know, whatever, you know, mimicking or repeating. Uh, and I don't feel like I'm... Researchers, we don't repeat what informants say. Uh, we should analyze it and do something with it, not just repeat it, like, yeah. you know, a parrot. While doing field work, I would say I try to be a chameleon and blend in, like I said before, in order to collect information, right? Mm-hmm. And and gain access and, and, and gain trust, right? So in that sense, it would be a, a chameleon. And what was the other one? Oh, fly on the wall? No, I don't, I don't think anthropologists could or should do that um, because we participate. It's participant, participant observation, right? Hmm. Not just observation. So a fly on the wall, first of all, you cannot be a fly on the wall. You cannot be, you know, you, when we are in the room, we are in the room and we need to tell everyone that we are in the room and who we are and what we're doing. Um, and that in itself is then not the fly on the wall, right? Uh, I think the chameleon uh, kind of speaks to how an anthropologist ideally should behave in the field because it, it brings forth the flexibility that is required of us in all settings, always trying to fit in, blend in, without fully becoming part of that field. A monkey. <laughs> I would describe myself as a monkey. Like trying my best to take a grip out in something, you know, hold on to that. And uh, oh, if this doesn't work, I have to take another branch and climb on that one. That's more a monkey, monkey approach to field work. <laughs> Hi, I'm Eva Maria. And I'm Malla. And you just heard Anet Nyqvist, Paolo Uimonen, and Titi Schmidt answer the question of which animal best illustrates their position in the field when doing anthropological research. They are all three researchers from the Department of Social Anthropology at Stockholm University. And in this episode, you are going to hear them talk more about their methods. I feel like the anthropological method often remains mystic as both insiders and outsiders to anthropology have difficulties in pinning down what it actually is. Yes, because it's so diverse. There's a plenitude of different approaches. And in this podcast, we have chosen anthropologists who do research in the most different fields you could possibly think of. But as you'll see, you still can find the basis of the anthropological methodology in all of their approaches. So let's start by talking to Annette Nyquist, who's doing organizational anthropology. Annette is an associate professor and lecturer at the Department of Social Anthropology. We thought we would start by talking about your new project, which is still in an early stage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, could you give us an elevator pitch of your current research? Um, right, so I'm going to the United States for a year for fieldwork on institutional investors, large pension funds that are also in the forefront of responsible investments. So I'm going to um, hang out with and follow the do-gooders of finance. That's what they themselves call themselves. The large uh, actors that want to uh, both make money and do good. 
So that's what I'm off to do. Okay, really interesting. So um, you're leaving soon for yes, your field work. In one month. And now you're a quite experienced anthropologist. Mm -hmm. um, are you still getting excited or nervous before field work? Oh, of course. Oh, of course. That's part of the fun about mm. it. Um, yes, and I have not done field work abroad as an anthropologist before because I did my PhD study here at home, as you know, and then also my postdoc in Sweden. So this is my first time abroad as an anthropologist, although I've been both in the United States and doing these other types of research and investigations in my previous life. Mm -hmm. So yes, but I'm still very excited and it's, I'm looking very much forward to it. And it's also, also a little bit nervous of what's going to happen and how it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get less exciting by time. No, no not for me. <laughs> if, it, if it's not fun or exciting or a little you know, nerve-wracking, I wouldn't still be doing it. Yeah, that's good to know <laughs> that we are not the only ones who get nervous before fieldwork. No, no, no. Yeah. And what kind of feelings do you expect to come up during fieldwork? Feelings? Um, huh, that's a, it's an interesting and good question. Okay, so I think I will still be a bit uh, nervous and anxious about, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I talking to the right people? Is this going... I mean, that type of, you know, feelings about the fieldwork per se. But then I also expect to be really thrilled and enthusiastic and excited about things that I learn, right? And, and things that people tell me and the knowledge that I acquire and the things that I get insights to. So, yeah, maybe a bit frustrated also, I expect, mm. when things don't go the way I wanted them to go or, you know, I don't get access or don't get mm -hmm. uh, appointments for interviews and stuff like that. Yeah, so talking about preparations, um, mm. what have you done so far and how far are you in contact with the field? Okay. What kind of background research have you done? I've done preparations for a long time now, and I actually think I would not have been granted the the nice grant that I that I now have that enables me to do this had I not done my preparations before even applying for money. So, two years ago, uh, no, 2012, and yeah, during during 2012, I went to both New York and San Francisco. You know, one at a conference and one at a vacation. And while being there, I contacted the people that are now my informants and mm -hmm. I have done I did some preliminary interviews just sort of to see well first several several purposes one to see if I could gain access mm -hmm. will they you know if I contact these people at these pension funds one in New York and one in in uh, San Francisco the really large ones uh, will they even answer my email and they did mm -hmm. and then will they grant me an interview and they did what will the interview be like? Well, it was very nice and open, and, and we sat for, you know, in these both these instances, an hour, an hour and a half, uh, with a very, you know, and I taped it. I sort of, I sort of checked it. It was a really uh, sort of testing the, the boundaries of, of access and how far will I get this time. And having done that, I realized, well, this, is, this wasn't that difficult. Uh, let me apply for money for a study. And then in that application, I referred to the, then I called it a pre-study uh, mm. that I had done with these two extensive interviews with really key informants. Um, and so those are now my contacts and some others that I've emailed since. But I've already sort of, you know, tested both the boundaries of, of access uh, 
and also um, the way of going about this. But I don't really know what's going to happen. I want, of course, more than just an interview in a boardroom. Mm-hmm. I want that and more. And I don't know how far into mm-hmm. the to their processes I will get. So that's going to be new. But that's those are the type of preparations I have done. So you know what kind of access you will have? Are you going to be in the organization and work there, or no? That I don't know yet. That I'm, I'm waiting until I'm I'm on the ground there. Yeah. Uh, because it doesn't make sense for me to do more preparations now. I want to be there and maybe even just say, well, I can come down tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. to yeah. sort of be really available for what happens. But I have a long list of names and organizations that I will contact once I've uh, settled in. Okay, so it sounds like preparations for fieldwork is a really long process. Oh, very long. How much of doing fieldwork is improvisation? Well, it's a lot of improvisation. Um, I mean, like I said, we we all have plans and we know what we set out to do, but then we also always have to be open for things that happen and turn up but both you know um, good and bad things well positive and negative things or you know that will you know either lead you into a great new direction unexpected that you couldn't have known of or that might you know also doors might be closed and you have to sort of you know think on your feet and do something else about it that is a very large part of doing ethnographic fieldwork think on your feet yes (laughs) Yes. exactly (laughs) yes all right (laughs) Now, you've uh, mentioned your recent book on organizational anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in that book, you also write that you are somehow drawn to bureaucracies mm-hmm. and that you quite often end up following suits. <laughs> uh, so in what way have you modeled your methods to fit into those rather formal environments? Um, that's really a matter of, you know, how you conduct yourself and you sort of, try to just blend in and fit in and not not be too strange or odd or stick out. I would I wouldn't go dressed like this to my field. Mm. I need to put on, you know, clothes that fit into the context. Dress corporate, like business suit. And you know, anyway, so I have to sort of rethink of more of my appearance um, mm. because they do. Obviously. And there's a, there's like a, a code, a dress code in the business world and financial world and, and also bureaucracies, maybe less so here in Sweden. Well, anyway, you know, you dress for work in a way. Uh, so that's that. And also how you, you have to be really attentive and, um, and, and how you behave. I mean, you can't really say anything, everything that comes, you know, on top of your mind. Uh, anything that you think of, well, you have to be attentive and yeah, really follow. That's why I thought I like play upon words sometimes uh, or oftentimes or, you know, to, just to play with, with words. And that's why I really think that follow suit is a good, it because the expression is that you sort of adapt, right? You mm-hmm. adapt and you do whatever they do. Sort of that, that's what that means in English, right? You Mm. You, uh, yeah, you follow suit, you adapt to the people that you, or to whatever, you know, the con- the, the situation is. Mm. And it's just in, funny because it's all men in suits in my, mm. or women in, in, in suits also uh, in my field. 
Uh, you have also written that you're not interested in people's private lives, but in their professional lives. Yeah. And how do you then separate these two spheres methodologically? Well, uh, in one sense, it's very easy. I don't go home to people, right? Mm. So that's 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 very sort of you know um, easy definition of private and, and public, right? But on other, I mean, some things are sort of interesting. I mean, maybe their background, their um, education, uh, you know, where do they come from now that they're here in this, you know, elite position. So so in that sense, it's sort of, you know, I find out who they are and how they got to where they are. I follow them, right? But in their professional, in their workday, in their work life not sort of behind the scenes, so not backstage, not home, mm. you know, to their kitchen or to their family. Although sometimes there are interesting uh, things happen where you sort of just happen to meet outside of the formal working context uh, in their professional roles. Okay, now you've already mentioned your former career. So mm-hmm. you're a trained writer. Yeah. You've been working as a journalist for many years. Mm-hmm. So we thought it would be interesting you hear, to hear your reflections on the writing process. Mm. Um, do you think that writing is a part of the method or is it rather already the theory? Or can you separate the three? No, you cannot separate the three. That's mm. very... You know the answer already. <laughs> it was in the question. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, No, uh, writing is an integral part of both doing fieldwork and analyzing, you know, the the knowledge gained from doing fieldwork. Uh, it's a continuous practice, you know, writing, we, we write all the time, right? From before fieldwork, during fieldwork, after fieldwork, in, in many ways, in many different stages, right? Um, but I also think maybe it's, It's individual. I mean, that I think goes for everyone. But then I, I for one, I think, I think when I write, I th- that's how I think, uh, in both you know, in minor and and major um, instances. I mean, it's as if my my uh, my brain is connected to my my hand, both in handwriting and in in typing, right. Um, so there's some i don't know and i think that's individual though some people you know think in their head i need to think on paper if you know what i mean mm-hmm. so that that's how it's connected to to writing always for me um but at that i like i said i think is individual you know how you think now we would be interested in knowing if you could remember some mistake you made during field work that you would like to recommend students to avoid <laughs> Um yes that's also a very big question there's always mistakes of course well one thing is you know the don't underestimate never ever underestimate preparation mm-hmm. you cannot prepare too much and that goes for both practical things you know oh that door was locked and how am i going to get in now you know that mm-hmm. um To also knowledge-wise, you know, no, of course you can't know about their um, work life and their profession more than they do, but you need to uh, have studied as much as you can to understand their work before you go in there and ask questions and participate. 
Um, otherwise, you'll miss things. But of course, you can't. You know, you, you know what I mean. You can't. Uh, they have many years of education and many years of experience, so you can't. You're not at their level. But you need to understand. Uh, you need to have prepared yourself as much as possible. So, and I've done mistakes like that. You know, asking stupid questions, um, too obvious questions. But then again, sometimes the sort of seemingly naive questions are also very nice because then they get talking and telling, you know, really from the ground, explaining things, which is great information and great, you know, knowledge. But you need to know uh, the level of your question, not ask a naive or unknowing quest, unknowingly question. Um, or seemingly uninformed question. Uh, it, it needs to be seemingly uninformed, not uninformed per mm. se. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So that is a very big... That to me, it, those are the mistakes that I right now remember that now afterwards, you know. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of other mistakes, but I, I probably have... Uh, forgotten them uh, deliberately or unconsciously <laughs> or even made them into you know uh, mistakes that did good that made me you know uh, realize something that was then really good for me to realize so mm-hmm. then it's not a mistake anthropologists are known as good storytellers mm-hmm. could you tell us some small small story from the field um Okay, so one anecdote um, from from the field is, uh, and that's from the more recent one, not from yeah, exactly. That's that's from the the institutional investors uh, study that I just completed and published in a book called Ombudskapitalisterna in Swedish. So that field work, I went to many for four seasons for four four springs, many and annual general meetings, uh, because that's where the large institutional investors representatives go to position themselves as, you know, we are responsible uh, and caring investor organizations and we do good and make money, right? So I, I went to a lot of annual general meetings to to see what they did and to listen in and to participate in these meetings. And uh, at, and they're all day and it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's kind of a boring setting you know, very formal and 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 boring, really. Uh, but interesting content-wise, mm. but boring situations, if you see what I mean. So, and they can go on for you know between four and eight hours these annual general meetings, and uh, and you know when you go to many of them, uh, you get tired. And at one point, I was so tired, and it, this was not in Stockholm; it was up north, uh, and it was a train ride. So a lot of people were taking, after the meeting that was extended, and I think it went on for six or seven hours, a lot of people from Stockholm, you know, these large, I mean, these institutional investors, people, and other, you know, all the men in suits were taking the train home, and as was I. And many of them were standing on the platform, and especially my main key informant that I've been, you know, meeting so many times, and and interviewed so many times, and we always talk to each other, and he's a really good, very generous with his time, very good informant for me, but I was tired. I did not want I did not want to continue that work day. But I should have, but because it would have been an excellent opportunity to sit, you know, to nail him down and talk about, you know, so what happened at this meeting, like I always do. 
But for three hours on a train ride, I just couldn't take it. I was tired. I didn't want any more information. So I hid behind a pillar on the platform so he wouldn't see me. But you know what? I really, I, I really strongly suspect that he also hid from me. <laughs> so it was so, I really felt that it was a mutual hiding experience from each other. We were both very tired at work. And wanted like that backstage moment of just sitting and reading the newspaper and, you know, going home. So I let him be and I think he was happy about that. I will, when I see him again, now that everything is done with that, I will ask him. Yeah. If he saw me hiding behind the pillar. <laughs> Next we have a chat with Titte Schmidt, who is a lecturer at the Department of Social Anthropology. Her research passions are spiritual and environmental movements. I've been uh, doing research in three different uh, areas of the world. I started with together with Christian Nordström in uh, South India in the 19, early 1990s. And then I shifted to uh, another fieldwork in the Amazon for my thesis and when I finalized my thesis in 2007 I shifted once again to Togo and another fieldwork there so I used to describe myself as uh, this split personality disorder because (laughs) I cannot keep to one fieldwork I had shifted all the time so yeah you have been around the world (laughs) yeah but not so much now now I'm more stable in Europe, looking into a movement called the Abrahamic movement, which is another kind of spiritual movement. So my interest as uh, the common theme for this is environmentalism and spiritism, mm-hmm. or spiritualism. Could you maybe give us an elevator pitch of that current research of yours? It's a bit uh, new, but it's uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this um, this new post- spiritual movements like Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra. Outsiders would term it as a new age philosophy or something like that. But not the insiders. <laughs> <laughs> How would the insiders? No, they think it's a more... Um, um, another way to look at reality where you move from your own emotions and take your own emotions as the basis for... Uh, the thing that you want to do in life or the decisions that you make and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't look upon it as flum. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them it's more science. Okay. So mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't like to be called like New Age because New Age has this, uh, gives people the idea that it's something uh, that you mix too much things, you know, like crystals, everything, you know, and this yeah. is a very firm movement and firm specific ideas that people follow. Can you describe the anthropological method as you practice it? I think the most interesting of my fieldworks is the one I did in in the Amazon, because there I developed a more, perhaps a different approach to fieldwork than uh, normal fieldwork, because in that uh, area people use um, a psychoactive brew called the daimi, or ayahuasca, more known as ayahuasca. And in order to get close to the members, you also have to partake. And it became a much more diving, more deep into 
their way of thinking by also using that psychoactive uh, brew myself. Uh, so I think in that sense I started to, it was just uh, as an accident because when my idea was to take this brew to get close to the members because it's like as if you go to Southeast Asia for example and you say you don't want to eat rice and when you go to the Amazon you say I don't want to use the daimi it's the same kind of offense and you don't get into the social environment you don't become part of people's life if you don't take the brew uh, so that was my decision from the start but I was just thinking that it's something to drink during the rituals and then I will go home and I will sleep and nothing else will happen but uh, actually it turned my whole way of seeing life upside down and I was luckily to have my mother in the field because I was more or less I broke down I cried a lot scary things happened wonderful things happened and uh, just as a way to I cope with my own vulnerability. I ran away to the mediums after the sessions and they started to explain their way of seeing what happened to me. And in that process also people came to, to, to listen about my story and then they started to talk about their stories. So after a while I realized that my keep on crying and being fucked up mm. every time I took the diamond was a kind of strategy. It developed into that because it made people talk more deeply about their own experiences. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, we have one question about emotions, too, which, which mm. maybe fit here. Um, how do you deal with emotions in the field and what do you do if they get too distracted? I use them as a tool. Mm. Uh, because I'm an emotional person, and everyone is, <laughs> to a certain extent, and I think everyone is emotionally affected in some way by their fieldwork. But in this fieldwork, I think also the readiness to expose yourself emotionally is a prerequisite for being viewed as being sincere by, sincere by the, the members, mm -hmm. and uh, not just being there in order to learn something about them, but being ready to learn something yourself also in the process. So I think emotions are, that's the key to fieldwork. At least that fieldwork, I won't say it's uh, the same with everything, but in that fieldwork. Because if just asking people, uh, because many people come to this, uh, the Santo Diamond movement is the name of this spiritual movement. They come there with illnesses or psychological problems and then you sort of come into the position of being a spy, you know, you say, can you tell me about your past experience and so on. People don't want to talk to you when you approach them in that way. But if you are also sick and you need help, then it's another thing, you become on the same level and then people open up. So in uh, that fieldwork it was a uh, it was a good thing to be like emotionally available and open. But it's difficult also because you need some rest from the fieldwork. And in that way, I, the first five months of my fieldwork, I had my mother in field. And that was awesome because I could mix myself up. I could like lose the stability in life and then I could go back to her and then get, regain it again. But I think uh, uh, emotions are 
should be more be looked into more as an important tool when doing field work because it's like that in that way we connect to people also mm-hmm. i tell something about myself you know i reveal something um yeah. if you feel that it's insincere then you have the uh, urge to reveal something about yourself uh, maybe if you've ever been in a situation in the field where you felt the urge to intervene or uh, to oppose of, to what is considered ethical in the field? Mm-hmm. Yes, several times. Especially when I did fieldwork with my ex-husband in India. And if you interview him, he can tell you a lot of stories where I tried to save dogs and other kinds of animals <laughs> uh, because I, I thought uh, our informants treated them in a not that correct way. Um, and uh, in uh, the fieldwork in the Amazon, it was more problematic because I had uh, some medicine with me in the field. And when people came and asked for medicine, it was also putting me in a dilemma if I should give them my medicine that I didn't want to take myself, you know, and these kinds of things. So how do you make the decision which morality is the right one in your own or the one of your informants that might be different? Uh, I don't think there is any clear-cut uh, yes or no. You know, they are right, I'm right. I think you have to listen to the specific uh, movement, uh, movement that you are in and the circumstances. Uh, sometimes just doing the wrong thing also opens up a new path for yourself. So it's not even... You should never do anything that risks anyone's life. But small things that you mess up that could be good for your fieldwork because it can open up things that you didn't expect. Well, do you remember any mistake that you would uh, recommend others to avoid? Is there anything? Yeah, because I, uh, I was uh, when I was together with my ex-husband, I was the one messing up the fieldwork with the dogs. So when I had brought my mother to the field, we actually had a house just next to us. Uh, with small puppies under, and people didn't take care of these puppies. And my mother was furious. We had to give them food. We had to save these small puppies. We had to give them water. And I was saying, no, now I've learned a new thing. We don't interfere. We don't mess up with other people's lives. We don't save dogs here. And afterwards, I okay, these small puppies, they died. But I felt ashamed. And still today I have my mother saying this once or twice a year. You know the puppies? You made them die. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, so that's not a... It, it could have been kids. I, I don't. I hope I haven't... Uh, I wouldn't have done the same thing if it had been a kid. But I think sometimes you get like... You get this idea how a professional anthropologist should behave in field. And then you forget about your own morality and your own base. And that can be even more disastrous. <laughs> Yeah. In the long run, have you ever considered using film? Uh, yeah, I've been working with a filmmaker in uh, when I did my field work in Togo with uh, another kind of movement, which is a movement around the mermaid in uh, West Africa. But I think it was a bit problematic working together with a filmmaker because a filmmaker wants to have straight answers, and an mm. anthropologist. Fierce straight answer. We want the intricate. We want to stay long. We want to. So, at least for my part, I didn't find a way to bridge that, and I didn't uh, 
I even didn't think I was technically uh, adapted to also to be a filmmaker myself. And I think if it is an anthropologist that is uh, trained in also filmmaking, that could be superb. Mm. Working together with a filmmaker who is not a trained anthropologist, that is a bit problematic. Anthropologists are said to be good storytellers. Could you tell us some story that has a special place in your memory? Mm. I can tell you a story about the problems of being an anthropologist. <laughs> and um, I, I stayed together with a woman who, who I will call Lucia. And uh, Lucia had a small house outside the village. This is in the Amazon. And she had been very kind some years earlier to allow her friend to also set up her house in her name, close to her house. And that uh, woman, her friend who settled down in this area, uh, she had a very famous father from Argentina. And uh, when I was in uh, there during the fieldwork, this famous politician came from Argentina to visit his daughter. And it was a huge news in the small village. Now this famous guy is coming from Argentina. So everyone wanted to impress him. Uh, but the thing was that Lucia had been... Um, um, she had some difficulties with this family that she allowed to move in because she was having... Um, uh, didn't have the same idea as the husband of her friend. He wanted to make a new path to the village. He wanted to cut down a tree or small things like that. So they were always uh, arguing with one another. And uh, But when this guy from Argentina came, Lucia wanted to invite everyone and be friends with everyone on her veranda. And I was also there and I was serving them coffee and tea and so on. And everyone was chatting and going along like fine. After a while, Lucia and this... Uh, the husband of her friend started to argue about a tree where the parrots used to sit and he had cut down that tree. So they started to argue about that tree. And it ended up in a very like uh, ugly discussion. They were like screaming at one another and uh, Lucia, who had invited this man, she started to cry because now her reputation in the village and to her friend and everything it did was ruined. And I felt sorry for her. So I tried to hug her and say that it's not such a big deal, you know, they understand you have this problem with this land, blah, blah, blah. And then she was angry with me. And she was staring at me and she was saying, why you think I cry for this guy? I cry because of you. And I felt I was the one who was invisible in this scene. I was just serving coffee and tea because... In her mind, now I will go down, uh, go to my room, I will sit down and I will write down about this messy story <laughs> and it will be part of my description of the Santo Daimon movement. So that's also problematic when you are in the field, you know. People want to present themselves in a, in a way and then when you hang out too long, <laughs> you get to see different uh, aspects of what's what happening with single individuals but also in the village. Did you include that description in your writing? No, I didn't. It was it's just for the students. <laughs> and finally we will hear Paula Uimonen, associate professor and senior lecturer, talk about her research in the fields of digital and visual anthropology. 
you have been doing much research in digital anthropology. Could you tell us a bit about your uh, research in that field and could you describe also the anthropological method as you practice it in that field? Mm. Okay, well, I started doing research in digital anthropology ages ago for my PhD dissertation, which focused on internet and modernization and globalization based on multi-sited fieldwork in Geneva, Southeast Asia and online. At the time, we called it cyberspace. Uh, that one was a study of uh, internet pioneers, I call them, people who were at the forefront of bringing the internet to so-called developing countries. And that research was based mostly on interviews with these internet pioneers, participant observation in conferences. And also I used uh, the countries of Malaysia and Laos as case studies for that research. That was 95 to 2000. Then in 2008, 9 and 10, I was doing research at an arts college in Tanzania, focusing on digital media and intercultural interaction. And that was very much, that was a single-sided fieldwork field based on campus and uh, a lot of observation, especially, participant observation with an emphasis on observation in uh, activities that featured digital media at the college. So classes in, in I, information and communication technology, digital media production like documentary films or music production or um, animations and so on. So as I understand it, you've always combined like studying the digital sphere in itself, but also studying media usage and what people actually do of it. Um, what are the benefits of these and could you also imagine doing a study merely online? Uh, I have myself never done a study online. Uh, I think it, it's totally doable. There have been some anthropologists who have done that and it, it all depends on what research questions you are expecting to answer. In my case, I have been focusing on how the internet is embedded in everyday life and that kind of requires doing research online as well as offline and depending on which settings I've done my research in non-western settings and here the for instance the scarcity of the internet is an important feature the uh, lack of computers the you know poor quality access and very limited access being limited to certain areas and what that generates in terms of imaginations of the internet and global interconnectedness, which is, is a little bit different than if you study the internet in a place like Sweden, for instance, which is very well connected and it's a, internet is like a feature of everyday life. Uh, do you then think that it is possible to separate the online and offline lives or realities? Uh, not really, because it's people who are doing things online. It's, yeah. you know, mediated interaction behind that there somewhere are people. That doesn't mean that online, there's online social environments that can be studied on their own terms online, like Belsdorf did in his famous study of Second Life. Uh, do you remember some mistake you made during fieldwork that you would recommend students to avoid? Yeah, I, th I think... We all make mistakes during fieldwork and somehow uh, the way I see it is not to 
just make sure that you avoid all mistakes. It's to learn mm-hmm. from the mistakes you make because often the mistakes can teach you something very important about the field. Whether it's about, you know, problems getting access to the f- field, you know, making making social faux pas, for instance, in the field can be very revealing because somehow what you expected to be the codes of behavior are not necessarily the case. So you can learn a lot from that. And uh, what else could you do with the anthropological method than uh, academic research? Uh, I think the anthropological method is uh, extremely useful in all kinds of contexts. Uh, I have myself worked, spent like half my professional career outside academia. And wherever I have been engaged as a consultant or advisor in my case, uh, I bring my anthropology with me. It's it's something once you have once you've acquired an anthropological take on things, you can't discard it anymore. So someone wrote that if you work in an organization, for instance, you can treat the organization as a field, and that's what we tend to do. So any situation within that organization, we also tend to try to contextualize it, try to understand it, and try to see map the social relations and hierarchies and all that involved, and the different cultural meanings that people within any organizational setting have. And I think that is very, very useful in anything you do. I think also in many cases for these days, because we're living in a society where audit culture is extremely prominent, is this whole idea of measuring and evaluating what's going on. I think anthropologists can bring their skills there to look at it in more qualitative ways and try to understand reality beyond statistics and so on. But yeah, I find it tremendously useful in so many fields. Yeah, it seems to be like a reality check to yeah. all those statistics. and Yeah, I think that's a good way of seeing it. Anthropology is reality check. That is tremendously useful in, in many, many settings. And it's also the skills you learn. You, you learn the skills of, of uh, building rapport, empathy, uh, trying to extract data from various sources and trying to see patterns in disparate sources of data and all that is very useful in many, many settings. But sometimes you may have to explain what the anthropological method is because people don't necessarily understand it. Right. Yeah. It's a challenge always. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really nice to hear also career-wise that there is something anthropologists can contribute to. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And Mm. I I think it's all the skills you acquire as an anthropologist in training, just the not taking anything for granted, always being ready to dig deeper and understand what's behind the obvious is very useful. Maybe I should also Mm. say something about uh, these days I I use different research methods. Uh, I use... uh, I like to categorize them as digital, visual, and sensory research methods, which is also something that comes from my interest in digital media. I think digital media can help us collect uh, data in different formats and then also to present that in different formats. So over time, I have become very keen on um, 
visual phenomena, for instance, visual, uh, it can be anything from taking images, taking photos or using film to document uh, the field or, but also paying attention what kind of, to what kind of images are circulating and what kind of images are, are research interlocutors themselves produce. So I find that very exciting because there is a lot more to be done with that. And also the, the importance of sensory impressions, so paying attention to things like smells, tastes in the field setting and what those senses can reveal to us and very fascinating, which also opens up new venues for, for anthropological research. And it's often an eye-opener to students when they realize that there is a lot more around you than what you can interview yourself to or observe. Yeah, okay. So we would wanted to finish with a story, some yeah. event that has a special place in your memory that you like to remember or that you don't like to remember. <laughs> can I share a method? Yeah, yeah uh, I think in my in my research that I did at the Arts College in Tanzania, I had this great discovery of a method where it was an experiment and it was the walking with video together with my research on interlocutors where I didn't really know how to do this. I had read an article by Sarah Pink about walking with video, but I didn't I barely remembered what she had written and I thought let's let's try this out and I kind of just improvised this with my research interlocutors and it turned out to be a wonderful experience, not just in terms of getting data, but also in terms of establishing a very strong sense of collaborative research where I passed on the authority for the over, the over the research process to the research interlocutors because they were then given, I gave them my video camera and then we walked around campus and I told them you can film whatever you find to be of interest. And uh, it was great fun. They, I could see that they really enjoyed doing it too, that they felt like, okay, now I am doing research here and I am walking mm -hmm. around with this video camera. And... The things they filmed and the reflections they had from filming and narrating what they were filming was very exciting. I could never, I realized then that I could never have gotten that data from any other method. I could have interviews, whether formal or informal, or just pure observations, would never have given me that data. And that's when I finally succumbed to the idea that objects do have agency, that the video camera does actually have agency which was a, a, a standpoint which until then I had resisted. But at that moment I decided, yes, it is true, because something happened there by way of the video camera. And what kind of things did they film? Or was there something that surprised you? That yeah, you there were, there were um, all kinds of things. One thing, one thing which came forth from the students, I did this with students and teachers and the chief executive. The students, as much as I was focusing on campus in my research, Uh, they asked them, can we borrow your video camera and film outside campus and go around town? And then I realized that, of course, for them, their student life was not just focused on campus. It was also being in that particular town and the different places in that town that were meaningful to them. For instance, the bus station, because that's where you took the bus to Dar es Salaam, or they even filmed the highway to show like this is this is the road to Dar es Salaam. This is the post office. This is where we get letters from our parents. Or a mobile phone shop. This is where we buy, you know, credit for our phones and, and things like that. So that was it. Was 
it made it very clear that their lives certainly stretched well beyond the field site that I had decided was the focus of my research, which also shows how a particular field site is the construction by the anthropologist, where we make certain delineations out of our research interests. But those, we also have to be aware that that's not the lives of people we are describing certainly go well beyond that. Mm, that's interesting. Mm. But what about doing um, film instead of writing anthropology? Uh, I have worked with film. I, I was part of making a film. I think it's great fun. It's uh, really interesting. I think through film you can communicate anthropological knowledge in much more accessible ways to a broader audience, which I think is a good thing for anthropologists to do. It's, of course, doing film takes even more technical skills of actually making a film that can be watched. And unless you're ready to develop those skills yourself, then you have to find people to work with who can help you with that, which is how I did it when we made a film. I just worked with others who knew all about filmmaking. But I think it's uh, tremendously useful and, and a lot of fun and a great way. Also, these days with social media, with, with YouTube and everything, you could also spread anthropological knowledge. To sum up, we asked our three interview partners what the strength of the anthropological method is, in their opinion. And here's what they said. The standard things that you stay long in uh, together with the same people or almost the same people for lengthy period of time that's the strength uh, but also weakness because after a year people don't remember even though you say every day that you're an anthropologist they don't bother you know you are their friends and then they start to talk with you and explain things and uh, that perhaps they shouldn't have done If, they, if you just had come to the field, because they forget. Yeah. But I, I think it's also a, a nice way if uh, we get close to people and we can learn a totally different way of thinking and approaching life and then we can also try to translate it in our own words and uh, bring some light to other people who have never been there or never even thought in this way so I think that's the strength of anthropology can like waking up people who don't have that um, uh, ability to go abroad and see new things uh, I think one of the one of the great advantages of ethnographic field work uh, especially the way it's performed by anthropologists is that we get an inside view of how things actually are rather than making assumptions uh, about how things are. And it's the actually understanding lived social realities in real life, in real time, uh, and the insider's perspective, the insider's point of view, which I think is very it distinguishes our the kind of knowledge we gain from any phenomena. And I would say for anthropologists, then in addition to that, we build on anthropological theory. 
we build on earlier research done by anthropologists in different parts of the world. So there's a lot of knowledge that we bring to bear on the material that we carefully investigate through immersion. So it's a combination of those. It's really the the type of information that we, with, with our methods, both, uh, you know, uh, uh, longer semi-structured qualitative interviews and the different stages and different variations of participant observation, just the, the different type of knowledge that we gain from, uh, you know, with those methods um, are so different in quality and in, you know, richness and in depth than, uh, you know, questionnaires or surveys uh, or stuff like that, right? Uh, not to say, uh, I mean, the, the more quali- uh, quantitative methods. I mean, they're totally different in character, the information, the knowledge that we gain from them. So, uh, right, it's not, it's not uh, knowledge that is easily compiled into neat, you know, um, figures, of course. I mean, we don't do that, right? We don't quantify our our, our results or, or our knowledge, right? Um, but there's so much more interesting and rich and um, and it can really, uh, it says something else about a situation or an, uh, a phenomena or event or whatever it is that we study, right? A process uh, than any of the other methods that any of the other disciplines do. Mm. So it's really, it's a, it's a unique uh, type of, of research that we do. Not to say that others don't do, you know, similar things, but we are the specialists at this type of research, and I mm. think we should be proud about that. So this was today's episode, and we want to thank Paula, Annette, and Titti for their contributions to this podcast. And we hope you have enjoyed listening and learned as much as we did. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Anthrotalking. You can find more of our podcasts at socant.su.se. Follow us on Twitter at Anthrotalking or email us at anthrotalking at gmail.com.